God, as we come to your word today, we are asking that you would come to us in a very real sense by your Holy Spirit, teach us, flood the eyes of our understanding with your heavenly light in a way that only you can, cause us to understand what is here in, in a manner that will encourage us, that we can be blessed and built up and go forth with greater confidence in your love and the work that you've done for us on the cross, Lord Jesus, and the work of your Holy Spirit within us as believers now. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this message is The Sin That Lies Within. It comes from a very well-known passage in the Bible in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7. I came across something that spoke to me as it relates to the whole nature of this passage. A small boy was taken to the barbershop for a haircut. The room was filled with cigar smoke. The lad pinched his nose and he exclaimed, Who's been smoking in here? The barber sheepishly confessed, I have, son. The little boy responded, Don't you know that it isn't good for you to smoke those big cigars? I know, the barber replied. I've tried to quit thousands of times. I just can't. The boy thought for a moment and then commented, I understand, sir. I think I understand very well. You see, I've been trying to quit sucking my thumb, and I haven't been having much success with it either. You know, whether it's a cigar or a thumb, whatever it might be, the truth is those of us who live in this body wrestle. We wrestle with the things we don't want to do, and we face the things that we do want to do often frustrated because we are hindered. Here in this passage, there is, without a doubt, great, intense conflict. And I want to read right through it so we have it in mind, then there will be many comments to make on it. If you look at Romans 7, verse 14, Paul writes here, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, fleshy, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do... That I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. Now, as we read along, notice how many times he says I, uses the pronoun I. Paul is talking about himself. He says then in verse 16, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law warring in my members, another conflict warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then this, in verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Here is a soul in very deep conflict. Now rather than firing off an outline for you right now and giving you four thoughts that rise out of the text, which I'm going to do, 
we have to have some preliminary comments. This is one of those passages that is among Bible commentators hotly contested as to what it is saying. If you read 25 commentaries, you'll get 25 opinions. So I'm going to work as carefully as I can with you to keep it as simple as I can today and keep all the comments right on the text as we go through the passage. If we can get through here and you understand today how this conflict relates to your life, then we'll be in good shape. And how it relates to Romans 6 and how it relates to Romans 8. If we can get through that and you understand, we'll be in really good shape. To wade through all the different views that commentators have on this passage, let me take you to the classic view first. The common interpretation is that this is a non-Christian in this conflict. The reason for that is that these words seem to be so hopeless and so full of defeat that surely how could this be a born-again Christian having this kind of struggle? And since Paul is using the pronoun I over and over and over again, how could the great Paul the Apostle have this kind of struggle? Surely he's talking about before he was born again. And then when he gets into Romans 8, he's off into the wonderful life of the spirit of the redeemed child of God. If you look at verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Surely Paul is talking about the days before he was converted. Verse 18, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I find not. Has to be a non-Christian because he doesn't know how to do what's good. And so the arguments go. But here is a person in great conflict with sin. A young man mockingly said to a preacher, You say that unsaved people carry a weight of sin. Frankly, I feel nothing. How heavy is sin? 10 pounds? 50 pounds? 80 pounds? 100 pounds? Come on, preacher, tell me. The preacher thought for a moment, then gently replied, If you laid a 400-pound weight on a corpse... Would it feel the load? The young man thought, and he said, well, of course not. It's dead. The preacher replied, the person who does not know Christ is equally dead. And although the load is great, he feels none of it. See, as it relates to the non-Christian view, the non-Christian does not feel the load of sin, does not have the kind of sensitivity to sin that is in this passage. So much for the non-Christian view. This is a Christian who is in view here. And now we are keenly interested because those of us who are Christians and have struggled and have read this passage and feel that we identify with it, we want to know how it all fits in. Repeatedly, the verbs in this passage are present tense, not past tense. Paul is definitely sharing something with us that I think is very surprising in a sense, because here is Paul sharing from his own life. Surprising to get this kind of insight into the great apostle Paul. Surprising, yes, but absolutely vital, and what a great gift he has given us here. For here is a believer, a Christian in view. Here is somebody with a great sensitivity to sin. Having come to Christ, there is a sensitivity to sin that is awakened immediately upon the new birth. And in terms of the Christian being sensitive to sin and wrestling with it, I think if you know and love the Lord, you know this kind of sensitivity. And it grows with the passing of time. 
You see, the spiritual believer is sensitive to sin because he knows it grieves the Holy Spirit. That's found in Ephesians 4. Because he knows that it dishonors God, and none of us would want to dishonor God. A spiritual believer stays away and is repulsed by sin and fights with it, wrestles with it, because sin keeps his prayers from being answered. Because sin makes his life spiritually powerless, and he knows that he or she would never want that on purpose. A spiritual believer is sensitive to sin because it causes good things from God at times to be withheld in our lives, and we would never really choose that on purpose. Because it robs us often of the joy of our salvation and because it inhibits spiritual growth, because it brings chastisement from the Lord and because it prevents being a fit vessel for God. And none of us who really love the Lord would ever not want to be a fit vessel for the Lord. Sensitivity to sin is for all these different reasons. Spiritual believer is sensitive to sin because you understand it pollutes your fellowship with other Christians. And you would never willingly want that to be blocked. You want that flow there with other Christians. And a spiritual believer is sensitive to sin because it inhibits you in partaking of the Lord's Supper, remembering all that he has done for us. And for these and many other reasons, a Christian is sensitive to sin. If you want to understand Romans 7, you must understand Romans 6. That's why we looked at Romans 6 in detail. If you want to eliminate a huge amount of discouragement from your life, you must understand the passage that is in front of us today. This is something that has huge practical application for all of us. To understand the passage, then, you must understand in Romans 6, the death of the old man, the birth of the new. And there, then, is the new I within you. You understand that sin's dominion has been shattered by God the Holy Spirit. Sin, yes, is still there. I have referred to it as an outlaw, no longer king of the domain, but an outlaw, loose and running wild in the kingdom, as it were. But that dominion, that unbroken dominion, shattered so that for the first time in your life, you can say no to sin and yes to Jesus, and then make it the pattern of your life to say yes to Jesus and begin to say no to sin more and more. These are things taught in Romans 6. But if you remember, in Romans 6, not only were we taught that we're brand new creatures in the Lord, that sin's dominion is shattered, but we saw in the last part of chapter 6, there is still a conflict. We saw that if you're not careful, if you just give yourself over to some sin, that sin will grab you, it will take you for a ride, and using the analogy of a roller coaster, it won't turn you loose until the ride is done, and then it tosses you off and leaves you in a heap, and then you come crawling back to the Lord. So we learn that you can't dabble with it. So the last part of Romans chapter 6 raised the issue and then sort of had some leftover teaching needed to be given to us. That's what Paul gives us here. So, if you want to have it very simple in your mind, when you come to Romans 7, the problem in Romans 7 is the problem left over in Romans 6. The problem in Romans 7 is the problem left over in Romans 6. That is what is going on here. And again, I say this teaching is crucial for every Christian to understand so you can eliminate unnecessary discouragement in your life. And I don't know about you, but I think I've had enough discouragement in my life to last me for my whole life. If I can eliminate any in the future, I would certainly want to do that. 
So the non-Christian view, we reject it outright and adamantly. The Christian view, we understand it makes perfect sense. Now, that leaves another question before I give you the outline. What kind of Christian is this? Most people that agree that this is a Christian will say, without a doubt, this is an immature Christian. Because look at this language. Look at these struggles. This must be an immature Christian. Another would say, well, at the very least, it's a very carnal Christian. Because look at the struggle with all the sin. Some would say this is a legalistic Christian because he keeps bringing up the law. But in truth, legalistic people don't have this kind of struggle with sin because legalistic people are those that gravitate to legalism because basically they have the idea that they can do these things on the outward, get them all in order, their ten little legalistic things in order in their life, and do them regularly, and there's their spirituality and their religion. That's legalism. Usually legalistic people are not this concerned with sin at all because they think they've dealt with it already. So what kind of Christian is this? Carnal? Immature? Legalistic? Well, the truth is, there are those that will say, here is a carnal and immature Christian, and here is this struggle in Romans 7, but you get through this struggle, you grow in the Lord, you pass on into Romans 8, you grow up, you become more mature, you're not carnal anymore, you're spiritual. You go into Romans 8, you ascend to the mountaintop, and you stay there. Once the power of the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you move into the Romans 8 experience, and you don't ever go back to Romans 7. That is a very common teaching, very common. In fact, all of the early teachings I received on Romans 7 were, in fact, that teaching. You go through the struggle in Romans 7, and then you graduate out into Romans 8, get filled with the power of the Spirit, and never go back to Romans 7. You know what the problem is with that teaching? Nobody stays on the mountaintop all the time. Do you? Are you there today? <laughs> no. I'm in the valley. How did you know? Because you know what? At any given time, many of us are in the valley, and some of us are on the mountaintop. But nobody stays on the mountaintop of the spiritual life all the time. Nobody. So to teach me, to tell me, Danny, you're going to go through a, a time where you're going to live that Romans 7 life. But then with the power of the Spirit, you'll get out of that and you'll go into Romans 8. Victory, 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 victory from there on out. And there's the power of the Spirit. And that's what it's all about. So what you need is to get that power. Get that down in you. You live differently. You know, that's what you need, Danny. You tell me that, I believe it, and this is how I lived my early Christian life. Then what happens is because I don't always have victory, I'm discouraged. Oh, no, I'm still the Romans 7 guy. I'll never get into Romans 8. And you just live in discouragement and depression for unnecessary reasons because you've been taught wrongly. Wrongly. And I think many of us have experienced it and enough we don't want that anymore. So here is... This person, is this a carnal Christian, an immature Christian, a legalistic Christian? The answer is a resounding no. Here is Paul the Apostle sharing personal truth with us about his life. Now hear this. He is sharing truth about his life, but he's not sharing everything about his life. He's going to share more about his life in Romans 8. What he is sharing is very, very true. But just understand this. It's not everything about his life. 
I'm just so grateful he shared this part, though. Because here is Paul the Apostle, and he's not carnal. He is, in fact, spiritual. He's not immature. He is, in fact, very mature. He is extremely mature. He's the, one of the greatest men of God who's ever lived by the time he pens this. Certainly the greatest apostle. By the grace of God and the power of God. So in Romans 7.15, he writes these words, For that which I do... I allow not, for what I would that do I not, but what I, what does he say, hate that I do. And in verse 22, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. You read the Psalms and David delights in the law of God. So there's all this writing about this passion for the word of God. Here is an individual who delights in the law of God in the deepest part of him. This is a spiritual person. This is a mature Christian. I am reminded here in this passage of Isaiah, the prophet in the temple. In Isaiah chapter 6, in the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his glory filled the temple. And here is the glory of Christ. And here is Isaiah, a man who loves the Lord. But now in the presence of a holy God and the angels yelling, holy, 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 praising him, the thrice holy God, Isaiah sees God in his holiness. He sees God as he really is. And then he sees himself as he is, sinful in the presence of a holy God. He falls on his face and he cries out, woe is me. I am all undone for mine eyes have seen the king high and lifted up. I see how sinful I really am. I thought I was okay until I came in here. Now that I see the Lord in his glory, I see how sinful I really am. You see, at that point in the life of Isaiah, his, the sinfulness of his own sin became so apparent to him. And then the Lord ministered to him, encouraged him, and sent him back out. This is the situation we have here. Now, to give you some terms to help you navigate your th- way through here, let me give you a few terms. Because there's so many different terms in the passage used a couple will help you. One term is humanness. If you're a note taker, write it down. Humanness. Because here in the passage, it's a good term of navigation, because here in the passage, Paul talks about being carnal. He says, the sin that dwells within me. He talks about my flesh, the flesh, my members, the body, the body of death. He uses all these terms. Now, if you're going to try to use all these terms and juggle your way through, well, I understand Romans 7 because I know about carnal, the flesh, the flesh, my flesh, my members, the body, body of death. Nobody can remember all of that. All of those terms, and he uses them all, are speaking about one thing, my humanness. In other words, my body, and my body, housed in my body is my brain, And housed in my brain are all the recordings of everything that's ever happened in my life, good and bad, so that all of these things are within the body. Best to use the term that covers all these other terms, humanness. You can navigate your way through the passage better. Okay? Then he uses a phrase that we need to pick up and use as well. If he wants to talk about dealing with sin, He doesn't say, it's my old man kicking up. He doesn't ever talk like that. The phrase he uses in this passage is this, the sin that dwells in me. The sin that dwells in me. You need to learn that phrase today. Take it right out of the passage and use it from now on. If you're going to talk about any kind of conflict you have with sin, the sin that dwells in me. 
And he's very clear where it dwells in his humanness, in the body. So those are, that's one term and a phrase to use relating to your humanness. And then he uses the pronoun I over and over and over. And he's talking about in that process, he says, the one who wills to do good. He says I, he says me. He uses the phrase inward man. He says my mind. He's not talking about the brain at that point. He's talking about the deepest inward recesses of his very being, the center of his being, not his brain, the center of his being. If he says, with my mind I serve the law of God, he's saying in the center of my being, I love God's word. I myself, he uses so. For all of those phrases, it's best to just say, my inward man. That's the new creation in Christ. My inward man. And the new I. If you have these phrases, you can navigate your way through the rest of your Christian life, and you'll find that believers around you with sloppy terminology and a sloppy understanding of, of the text in the Bible have a lot of discouragement in their life, and they don't have the right answers. So I'm trying to help you with these terms today to take you out into the future. Now I'm going to give you an outline. All of that was a running leap. Here's the outline, and we're going to go through this quick, because with all of that, we're just going to explain as we go. There is here Paul's reasoning, number one. There is the reiteration. He brings it back around. He spirals through. He just keeps giving us this lament over and over. The reasoning, the reiteration, the realization, the realization, and finally his reaction at the end. Let's move through this as quick as we can. He says here in verse 14, look at verse 14 in your Bible. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. When he says he is carnal, what does he mean by that? He's simply saying, I'm a sinner. The law is good. It's spiritual. It comes from the Holy Spirit. I am a sinner. He always was aware of his sinful condition. Do you know that? Even toward the very end of his life, Paul the Apostle was deeply sensitive to his sin. He wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, these words. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Not was chief, am chief right now. Not an exaggeration, not being hyper-spiritual, not being clever. I'm writing Timothy, I better make this sound good. None of that. A true sensitivity to his own sinful condition right up to the end of his life. So when he says... I am carnal. He's saying, I'm sinful, and I'm so deeply aware of it. Then he noticed, he says, sold under sin. There are those that want to say, well, there it is. He, he sells himself to sin, and so this is a carnal person after all. Uh, immature believer, whatever. Sold under sin literally could be translated sold under the sin. In other words, I don't sell myself out to sin. Somebody sold me into this sinful condition. That's what he's saying. Sold under the Sin. He doesn't sell himself. Someone else sold him into it. Do you know who it was? Adam. That's right. Thank you very much. Adam in the garden sold us all, folks, into sin. So that from the time the first human parents transgressed into sin before God and began to have babies, their little babies were little sinners. You understand? Sinful parents give birth to little baby sinners. That's why the, one of the first words toddlers say as they run across the room, grabbing is... Ooh, split decision. 
no and mine. Both just as good. But it's all about self. You see, sold under the sin, born in sin, as David put it in Psalm 51.5, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So here's Paul the Apostle, this amazing individual, this amazing man of God. He loves God so much. He's so passionate about the word of God and his desires to please God are right at the highest possible standard. And thus he's in this conflict. We have this man who is in every sense what we would call a holy man of God. Yet he sort of opens up the cloak as it were and shares from his own personal life with all of us. And we're surprised. And yet he's saying, don't be. This is the way it is. William Hendrickson had some great words here. He said, For the present, the Christian is living in an era in which two ages, the old and the new, overlap. There was a time when he was exclusively a sinner. There will be a time in heaven when he will be exclusively a saint. Right now, as Paul is dictating the letter, he is, in fact, a sinner saint. A saint, to be sure, but a sinner still. Hence the tension and the inner conflict. Here is Paul the Apostle writing from his life, and he is a sinner saint. If you grew up Catholic, please at this point, just jettison that understanding of the word saint. We are talking about a saint in Bible terms as simply one called out and into fellowship with God. So we're not talking about Paul as a statue or something like that. He is a sinner saint. And I say that to say this. You are a saint too. The saints are all God's believers in the Bible. So a sinner saint. Paul then being a sinner saint here in the, in the words of the passage, sold under sin does not mean he's committed to sinning, sold out to sinning. Paul realized that in this life, believers will constantly have a battle with sin because of our, here's the term again, humanness. And that he is sold under sin in this sense. I was born this way and I'm stuck this way as long as I am in this body. As long as I'm in this body. So you understand the phrase, I'm carnal, the phrase, I'm sold under sin. And you know something? To be this sensitive to sin is not really all that bad if you think about it. I want to draw your attention to Revelation chapter 3 verse 14. Please turn there in your Bible. Revelation 3 14. It's one of the letters to the seven churches that our Lord Jesus wrote actually from heaven, which makes it rather important. This happens to be the letter to the Laodicean church. We're talking about the whole idea of being sensitive to sin. In Revelation 3.14, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, and I would wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are what? Lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot. Some of the strongest terms ever to come from Jesus Christ. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Why? Here's why. This is the way they thought in that church. He says, because you say, I am rich. I have become wealthy. I have need of nothing. 
and you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And so here's the remedy from Jesus Christ. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Here is the solution. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Then you read, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. You put me outside, let me back in. This is not the words of Christ to unbelievers. These are the words of Jesus Christ to a lukewarm church who has lost all sensitivity to sin and the holiness of God. And he's saying, here's the solution. Repent now. I'm outside the church. I want back in. I want to come back into your lives and fill and bless. You've become so numb. You've lost all sensitivity to everything. That is a very undesirable condition. So I say again, back to Romans 7, the conflict we see in Romans 7 is in fact a very healthy one, a very healthy one indeed. And this is where the unnecessary discouragement and condemnation is going to be dispelled in the future. When you find this conflict going on in your life, it's going to be signs of life. Whoa, I hate this God. Why am I doing this again? To, to react that way to sin is healthy. As opposed to, yeah, it's just a little thing. Ah, God doesn't care about that anyway. I'm human after all. No, no, that's a Laodicean remark. Back in Romans 7, it has been well said, not only can a Christian say that he still has conflict with sin, though he is redeemed, the more spiritual he is, the more likely he is to say it, that you have conflict with sin. The more spiritual you are, the more likely you are to say it. So what did Paul discover that he is sharing with us? I want to give you a lifetime thought right here. If you're drifting now, come back. Welcome back. A lifetime thought. Here it is. The pathway to holiness is paved with a sense of your own wretchedness. It's a lifetime thought. The pathway to holiness for you as a Christian is paved with a sense of your own wretchedness. It is a lifetime thought and it's a very healthy thought. This is, in fact, where Paul the Apostle is right here. This is what he discovered, and this is what he's sharing with us. This is what he means when he says in verse 14, I'm carnal, sold under sin. Then in verse 15, he says, I don't approve of all this. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, I find myself doing. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer... Do you see that? No longer... No longer since when? To say no longer, it must be after the fact of something, right? A non-Christian cannot say no longer. Only a born-again Christian can say no longer. So I'm pointing it out to you because it's very critical. Verse 17, but now it is no longer I. No longer since when, Paul? Since my conversion. Since my conversion... This is no longer. It is no longer I who do it. It's not the new I. It's not the new me deep down in the deepest part of me. It is, in fact, the sin that dwells in me, in my humanness. Verse 15, just looking there, he says, For what I am doing I do not understand. 
A better translation would be, I do not approve of. The reason being, he does understand very well in very great detail what's going on here. Better translation, I don't approve of. He's expressing great frustration here. So Paul the Apostle, longing to give back more than he actually does, having really a standard of moral and spiritual perfection he wishes he could offer to God, finds himself so frustrated because he's still in the body and his sin is hindering him in that. He has a reiteration of all this in verses 18 through 20. We'll just read over it as he spirals around again to share his heart anguish with us. And he says in verse 18, For I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. In me where? He didn't say, I know that in me in the new eye, nothing good dwells. I'm shot through and through with evil. No. He says, I know that in me, and now I'm talking about when I say me, about my flesh, my body, nothing good dwells, my humanness. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Verse 19, we find out Paul realizes he's capable of any sin. You need to realize that today as a Christian so you don't shock yourself in the future. Understand what I mean by that? Some of you shocked yourself already along the way. I'm born again. How could I have ever done this? Get used to disappointment. (laughs) Paul is saying in these verses, besides whatever else he's saying, he's saying, I'm capable of any sin. Just because I'm born again doesn't mean I'm not capable of any sin. As long as I'm in this body, I'm still capable of any sin. And that is why you have, in your own life, done things that have shocked you. How could I do this? Because you're still in the body. So he says in verse 19, For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Please understand, in the life of Paul the Apostle, when he talks about evil, it may in fact be not doing something wonderful for God. Not doing something wonderful for God. Not some gross, evil, despicable, intensely low-life thing. We're, we're listening to a holy man of God. Understand the value of the terms here. So, he says, The evil I will not to do, that I practice. And then in verse 20, Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it. Here comes the phrase again, But the sin that dwells in me. Do you understand what he's doing right here? He is putting his finger right on the corruption. He's putting his finger right on the source of evil or sin in his life. When it comes, he's putting his finger right on the source. It is the sin that dwells in me. That's what he calls it. But he also confines it to a sphere. And do you know what that sphere is that he confines it to? It's not in the new eye, which is conceived of holy seed, we are told in Ephesians. It is, in fact, within the body, within the humanness. So he confines it. He puts his finger on the source, and he also confines it. Here he is being very exact, very exact. This is a man born again who truly understands the miracle of the new birth, who totally understands being conceived of holy seed, born again by the Holy Spirit. This is a man who understands that in his deepest part, he lives to please God, and yet He finds sin taking the beachhead of the body, and there is sin still within his humanness. So there is a responsibility here for the sin in his life, but also an understanding of where it is active within the body. The reasoning, the reiteration. Then the realization. He says in verse 21, I find then a law. 
This is not a confused man at all. I find then a law. He is reasoning, razor-sharp reasoning. Reasoning to the point that he figures out a law. He clearly understands his problem. Verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who in fact wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the deepest inward part of me. But I see another law where? In my members. It's at work in my body. Warring against the law of my mind, his deepest being. Bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Bringing me into captivity. Only a Christian can say that. Do you understand why? Only a Christian has been set free. Only a Christian can go back into captivity because they've been freed out of it. Someone who's never been born again is not brought into captivity. They live in it. Bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Humanness. This is not a confused man. He says, evil is present with me. I find a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. So though now born again, longing to do right, in fact doing right a lot of the time, in the deepest part of his heart, sin is still there in the body. The reasoning, the reiteration, the realization, and finally the reaction to all of this. Verse 24 and 25, he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this? What's the word? Body. He calls it the body of death. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, the deepest part of his being, I myself serve the law of God. With the flesh, there's still the problem of sin. You understand that as a born-again Christian, that new I, that new creation within you, conceived of the holy seed of the Spirit of God, you are fit for heaven. The new eye, that redeemed part of you, is fit for heaven. There will be no change in the redeemed part of you when you die and go to heaven. You are fit for heaven right now. That's why you go to heaven when you die. The only thing that isn't fit for heaven is the body, this unredeemed part of me. This is, you're staring at my unredeemed mortality. You're looking at Danny's unredeemed mortality clothed in a blue shirt and a tie today. This is not fit for heaven. It's not going there. My body is not going to heaven. So I will get a new one there. However, the new I, the person that I am in Christ, I am fit for heaven. Nothing has to change. This is why I can have fellowship with God right now. This is why to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. You are so fully redeemed. You are fit for heaven right now. That's why if you drop dead right now, you're going straight there. And that is a glorious truth. So that's who we are in Christ. And yet as we still live in the body, there's a problem with sin. We're going to fight it. And he describes it. Basically, when he says in verse 21, I find in the law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, he pictures sin as sitting across the room, watching him. And here he is going about his business, and when he's about to go do something really good, sin sort of jumps in the way and tries to stop him. It's pictured as being with him in the room, in the body, is the idea. Now, as I said to you, Paul is sharing with us from the very personal part of his life. And what he is saying about his life here is very true. But this is not all that is true about his life. There's more that's true about his life, and that's in Romans chapter 8. 
So here we find that who will deliver me from this body of death? The answer, Jesus Christ will deliver me. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. The word in the Greek is not just a word used for a building, a structure. It is a word used of dwelling places. That includes the new body. That includes the new body. Jesus Christ is going to deliver me from this body into a glorious body, not made with hands eternal in the heavens. In 2 Corinthians 5.4, Paul wrote, For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Life. Life everlasting. I like these words that I read of Thomas Watson. He said, a hypocrite may leave sin and yet love it. As a serpent casts its coat but keeps its sting. But a sanctified person can say he not only leaves sin, but he loathes it. He goes on to say to the Christian, God has not only chained up sin, but changed your nature made thee as a king's daughter, all glorious within. He has put upon thee the breastplate of holiness, which though it may be shot at, will never be shot through. Because God has completely and utterly and totally saved us in every way a man or woman can be saved. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you today for your goodness to us. Thank you, Father, for the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, though all of this is true of the believer, it is not all that is true of a believer. And there is more waiting for us in Romans chapter 8 of your great work of your Spirit in our life. Thank you, Lord, that we can study here today and come to a balanced understanding of how it all works that we might rejoice in how gracious you are to us. How wonderful and marvelous is Jesus to me. Thank you, Lord God. We bless and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.